Okay, so welcome back, everybody, to the fourth episode of the Math and Physics podcast. Uh, so I'm your host, Parker. And I am Ray. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Pekka Sinervo from U of T. Uh, Mr. Sinervo? Hi there. Hi. Okay. Uh, okay, so today we're going to be ta- just having a few questions for Dr. Sinervo, just to... Uh, um, understanding how he got to where he is today. Um, I, I can just give like a small history of how I know Dr. Sinervo. So he was my professor of one of my seminar classes in the first year of U of T, uh, 199. That was that will be the dark matter course. So we were talking about dark matter, dark energy, a lot of interesting things in the universe. And um, yeah, so that's where I know Dr. Sinervo from. So that's pretty much the background behind uh, how we know each other. So yeah, so we can just dive into it. Parker? Awesome. Yeah, you can go ahead with your first question. Okay, so my first question to Dr. Sinervo would just be, um, how did you get into the field of physics? Like, when did you know that you liked it? You know, it's uh, hard to know exactly the very moment that this actually took place. Uh, uh-huh. Growing up, I was interested in maths and physics and computer science. Uh, I did a lot of things that, uh, you know, involved just sort of figuring out how to understand uh, how things just basically worked. I turned out uh-huh. became the sort of mechanic in the family. Uh, but as I went through uh, high school, I re- also appreciated that I did math really well. The, uh, by the time I got to university, I took a math and physics program, not quite sure which direction I really wanted to go. And by the middle of my second year, uh, I realized that I really like working in the lab and mm. that the uh, trying to get do measurements and understand things the, uh, that happen around me the, uh, was what really... Uh, turned me on. And so that's what actually led me the, uh, to decide that physics was really the right sort of career. And uh, the, uh, so I completed the math and physics program, but then went on uh, to focus on experimental physics. Oh, yeah. So, so you mainly focused on the experimental part, right? Yeah. Which is, yeah. You know, experiment is not just about going and working in the lab and doing measurements, but it's also the uh, analyzing the data and understanding, you know, what are the possible ways of the, uh, the taking the information and saying something about how the, uh, what the underlying system that you're actually studying. Uh, so I do a lot of what you might consider are sort of mathematically oriented things. I do a lot of detailed mm-hmm. statistical analysis and the uh, model building, spend a lot of time on computers building up uh, computer models and simulations the, uh, and uh, and then doing measurements that I can compare directly with theoretical predictions the, um, of the phenomena. So it's a combination of things that are sort of in the lab and measurements and figuring out uncertainties and then doing the interpretation and un- working to understand what it all means. Okay. Okay, that's that's actually really interesting. That's really yeah. cool that, uh, in the experimental side of things. Yeah, when I was in high school, I actually had like the, a similar thought process. 
I was taking, like in grade 12, I was taking math and physics, and I couldn't decide whether I'd want to go strictly into math uh, or do, you know, math and physics at U of T. And so I ended up just going into, like, choosing physics, going into math and physics. And then obviously I loved my program. I, I loved my first year. So I'm going to stick to physics, but I also really love math, which actually plays a huge role in physics. Mm-hmm. Interesting story about me, actually. Um, I <laughs> Funny story. I actually hated math when I started loving physics. I was very, very young and I just loved how, you know, the universe worked and I absolutely detested the math. Like wherever it was, I would just not care about it. I would just skip that part. For example, if I was watching a video on physics, I would I would literally skip the math part because I would hate math that much. And this was in grade six and seven. And then I moved to Canada. And that's actually when I started really enjoying math a lot more. And then I continued on. So a, a, a little different story okay. <laughs> on uh, how I got onto the path. But yeah. Yeah, you know, the issue of, you know, how math actually and physics interact is, is something that has uh, had the degree of controversy be associated with it, or at least mm-hmm. different views. You know, there are some people who actually believe that our world is fundamentally mathematical and that one actually can describe everything with some form of a mathematical theory or description. Uh, There are others who actually are somewhat more skeptical that in fact, the world is fundamentally, you know, mathematical, uh, but rather see it as one of the tools, a pretty good tool, but only one of the tools for figuring out how the world works uh, around us. Um, You know, a very good example of this is that if you go and look at the biological sciences, um, you know, now this is not Uh physics, but but they actually, it's a science and you're doing measurements and you're using, you know, you are using mass, but it's much less the uh, important in a certain sense observation and cataloging and understanding species the uh doesn't require high math nonetheless it is a science so you know there and and there are parts of physics that actually are not have not been soluble or we don't have a theory that uh we actually can claim really describe the phenomena we have things that are approximations and and in certain cases, we actually don't even have a very good, even an approximation the, uh, to understand what's going on from a mathematical point of view. The, uh, you know, a very simple example is, you know, you look at complex phenomena like the sand on the beach. You know, the patterns that are formed by the wind uh-huh. on, on a beach, they uh, actually are very difficult to describe mathematically. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's actually really a really interesting example. Yeah, there are a lot of. Yeah. It's like. Um, oh, I know. I was oh, just going to say there's lots of phenomena like that. You know how, you know how cream or milk actually gets uh, diffuses into a coffee cup. Uh, yeah, that's also a, a system that uh, we've not been able to come up with a, a really good theory to uh, describe. Well, that that's actually pretty sad if you think about it. That we have <laughs> theories of the universe. And we don't even know how cream mixes with coffee. Uh, yeah, so so I'm a little, I'm actually on the side of the skeptics who aren't, I'm not convinced yet 
that in fact mathematics is the only language you can use to describe our world. Hmm. Oh wow! Wow, that's big sense. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, you got your bachelor's degree at the University of Toronto, and then you moved to uh, Stanford. Um, so, can you just talk about um, your post secondary uh, career? Or, yeah, your post secondary path. Well, so uh, when I finished, or I was finishing my uh, undergraduate degree, uh, I started looking around for departments and universities where I'd actually be able to do the kind of science I wanted, which I, I'd already decided I wanted to understand particle physics the, uh, uh, better. So I, I had a, you know, a handful of, of places that had a very strong particle physics effort, uh, and the ones that all that were most attractive were the universities that had access to the sorts of facilities you need to do particle physics experiments. The right. uh, Stanford has uh, a three kilometer long linear accelerator, an electron accelerator, and the, or it actually operates it for the uh, Department of Energy. So the, uh, I really was a graduate student at that lab. And so, you know, you were the, you could actually do the experiments at the lab. I didn't have to travel anywhere. It was just all there. So that was one of the things that made Stanford attractive. The, uh, and the other thing was that there were some really great people. Uh, you know, I think I count uh, three Nobel laureates the, uh, just in wow. my field of physics the, uh, oh, at wow. the lab. So uh, it was a fairly you know, interesting place to be especially in the 1980s when I was there. And th yeah. this is going to be slightly, actually not really an objective question, but just an interesting question. Was it hard to get into Stanford? Like, did you need a 4.0 or some crazy GPA like that? Or was it just like a bunch of entrance essays or some research that you had to do to get in? Like, how would you get into a prestigious school such as Stanford for your PhD? Well, so... Uh, you know, uh, graduate schools uh, look at people from many different uh, perspectives. And so uh -huh. information that they have, they have your transcript. And so a strong transcript is, um, is helpful. Uh, you write the graduate record exams, the GREs. And so that's information that's used. Uh, letters of reference from people that you've worked with as an undergraduate the, uh, are, are quite important because they probably give the best, most insight into what the potential the student has. The, um, and, uh, and then in many cases, you actually get, uh, you have some interaction with the student or the, uh, uh, when they're actually applying or looking at different programs. The, uh, so, so all of that gets put together. Um, it's a competitive place. So, you know, I think we had a uh -huh. class of 20 and there were about 400 applicants. Uh, wow. And okay. uh, the, uh, so I did have a strong transcript. It was, a, it was essentially a 4.0. Um, I did really well on my GREs. Uh, I had good letters, I know. I don't know what they said, but I have actually been working <laughs> for several years as a research assistant. So, uh, you know, my package was, I think, reasonably strong. The, wow. Uh, yeah. 
And did you uh, get your PA? Like, did you do your master's and PhD at Stanford, or uh, it's just or did you? In the U.S., it's actually pretty common, and now it's actually getting more common in Canada to go and do a straight PhD program, where you. Oh wow! Wait, so it, no master's? So no master's degree. Uh, it's essentially oh. structured so that the uh, in the uh, PhD program, uh, within the first two years, you end up having to go through uh, write a qualifying exam. Yeah, or some sort of an oh. examination like that. And if you fail that exam, or the, um, then you can actually often will be awarded a master's degree because you've completed all the coursework. And uh, okay. that would actually be equivalent to the work expected in the master's program. The, uh, but uh, you're, you're, you sort of go through directly into a, a PhD program. And, and that's, oh, wow. that's sort of what happens right now at U of T. Um, about two-thirds of our incoming students go directly into the uh, what we call the direct entry PhD. Wow. That's... And so how many, how many years did you spend at Stanford? So I was there for not quite six. About, um, you know, I started there in September and uh, left uh, about five and three-quarter years later, the, uh, sort of in the May-June the, uh, period. And what did you write your uh, thesis on, if oh. you don't mind me asking? <laughs> no, I don't mind. <laughs> it's, um, you know, at, when, when I went there, the, um, one of the things that we were actually trying to understand was the behavior of quarks. And what were the forces that uh, caused quarks to interact and come together to form the particles that we actually see? Uh -huh. um, and one class or group of particles are those that are formed from a quark and an antiquark. They're a family of particles called mesons. Uh, and the, uh, these mesons, they come in different energy states. So you have a ground state of a meson, you know, the state that is most stable. But then you have excited states where the quarks and antiquark are in a, they're, they're behaving differently. They're, they are in a higher rotational state or they're, they're actually acting like they're bouncing off of each other. So they're in a sort of a vibrational state. Uh, and by looking at those energy levels, you actually learn about what are the forces that cause that rotation and that uh, those radial the uh, excitations. And so uh, my work was actually uh, discovering a number of those higher energy states, and from that wow. being able to then talk about what the forces are between these quarks. Um, so the you know the title of my dissertation is a little bit gobbledygook it's you know a study of the strange <laughs> meson spectrum the uh in k minus proton interactions at 11 giga electron volts <laughs> you know, okay um, uh, i'm i'm not gonna lie i do not think parker and i fully understood that but i think we can appreciate it for what it is yeah. it's very very commendable i'll give I you mean, that ho hopefully hopefully one day we will be one on day. the level to understand that yeah not yet, not yet. Okay, so just just continuing, um, just a quick question. Were there any like setbacks or some things that you didn't expect on your journey to, you know, where you are today? Like, were there any big moments, big regrets in obviously professional, in your professional career that you had? Yeah. Uh, there was probably okay. one. The... Um... Uh, when I was a postdoc and uh, then my first uh, year as an assistant professor, um, I was working at a 
experiment at a lab called Fermilab oh. near Chicago, where we were colliding protons. You worked and at Fermilab together. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And okay. so I, I was working there, but we were at the same time the, in the U.S. The decision was made to build a much larger proton mm -hmm. collider called the superconducting super collider, which was um, the construction of it started uh, around uh, 1988. And, uh, and I was actually part of one of the collaborations of a scientist that was proposing one of the big detectors to be built wow. there and, and the, that we would use to study the proton, uh, energy proton collisions. Um, so we worked on that real hard. Uh, we had already designed the detector largely. We were, I was working on building, designing and building the electronics that would actually read out part of the detector. Um, and, uh, and so that was going along. We had gotten a lot of funding to do that and uh, had a group together at, already at Toronto now. And then in 1993, the U.S. Congress canceled. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, so that was five years of work. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Quite a big setback in the career. Uh, yeah, yeah. So at the same time, we've been working at Fermilab. And so it wasn't like my, you know, it was all of five years gone. But a significant part of my five years of effort was uh, associated with the SSC. Uh, and more importantly, perhaps, it was what I sought to be the future of where I was going to go. So uh we needed i needed to reassess what the options were and and ultimately decided to work on an experiment uh that would take place at the large mm. hadron collider in geneva switzerland wow so so that was yeah. a big career that, change it was a big pretty big well career change may be too strong but certainly sorry sorry yeah yeah sorry not career change that was the wrong word but yeah, like right? change in yeah, yeah yeah sorry i understand i understand the, um, um, and it worked out, uh, you know, we, we thought we'd actually start taking data by, oh, around 2007, uh -huh. 2008. And we really only started to get data around 2011, 2012. But, um, you know, one of the, in the first few years, we uh, discovered the Higgs boson uh, and have now been searching for things like dark matter and other sorts of phenomena that, we think should be occurring in these high energy proton collisions. The, um, so it's, it's, it's been okay. In fact, I've been very pleased at how things have developed, but uh, the, the demise of the SSC was such that we could have been doing this science 15 years earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so um, can you explain for us in the audience uh, what the Higgs boson is and how you and your team came about its discovery? So the Higgs boson, some people, it's, it's been given the name and it's uh, the uh, somewhat, somewhat facetious, but it's called, been called the God uh -huh. particle. And uh, its role the, uh, is that uh, it, is, it is a particle that interacts with all of the other particles that have mass. And the interaction of the Higgs boson with these particles, like quarks and electrons and cousins of electrons uh, are what actually end up giving these particles their mass. So if the Higgs boson didn't exist, there would be no way for these particles to be massive. And so our world would look completely different. Mm. 
the fact that it actually interacts then with all particles that are massive means that, you know, if you if you've ever read the uh, Tolkien's the Lord of the Rings, you know, there's one ring that rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Higgs boson is that, is that one, one ring. ring. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, well put. So it is. So so that's what made it important because it had been predicted. The um, in the theory that we had put together to describe all the various forces that we we had uh, we knew about, uh, but it hadn't been observed. So it was kind of like a and missing piece. So it was a missing piece, and if it didn't exist, then the theory we had was just broken. It was just not was ah. not correct. The, uh, so it was a real strong test of what we call the standard model. The name that we give to the theory and, that uh, we use to describe, and uh, I'm assuming that the this was all done in the LHC, right? <laughs> yeah, and so just a question that I've always wanted to ask someone that worked at the LHC: How was it like working there? Because I've been there once when it was working, like it was currently on, so I unfortunately I couldn't observe the LHC, but I was on top. And it was just a beautiful experience just sitting there watching people looking at the data. So I just want to ask you from a first person view, right? Like, how was it working at the LHC? Well, so, you know, the detector that we build are underground. Okay, yeah. And they're in, they're in large caverns. And it takes, a, it takes a ton of engineering and design to be able to ensure that what you actually, when you get down there and the, the equipment that you've built actually gets installed. Um, it's a huge amount of planning and the uh, people looking over the plan and reviewing things the, uh, before you even start. Um, so working there, uh, building the uh, detectors and installing them uh, was really thrilling because you finally started seeing this big detector start coming together from literally all corners of the world, people bringing components that they had built. The, uh, and then some of the components that were very large having been built right on the CERN site. Uh, so, so that was actually a lot of fun. From an experimental science point of view, you really were able to see how the, believe we're starting to get the detector operating. And um, so once you got the detector going, and that meant being down in the, in the pit the, uh, for a long time, uh, I think it took us uh, close to a decade to actually build the detector. The, uh, but once you started turning it on and you started looking at the data coming out of it, then the, then the challenge turned to figuring out what this data means. Is the detector really working? How well is it working? Right calibrating it and all that other stuff which is also exciting but in a different way because now you're actually beginning to see the detector come to life yeah the uh and then starting to run with proton collisions was another you know exciting time when we could actually finally see the detector doing what it was designed to do the uh and, uh, and then the search began then we started looking at collisions then you have to realize we looked at a gazillion collisions. We looked at trillions, trillions of collisions the, uh, before we actually had uh, enough collisions that had evidence of a Higgs boson that we could claim uh, that we've observed something new. Yeah, so I don't know much about the LHC, so this might seem like a silly question, but like, how do you isolate 
like singular particles and then make them crash into each other in the in the collider so it's actually pretty easy relatively speaking to actually isolate protons uh, protons are um, the nucleus of a hydrogen atom so if you just took hydrogen gas which you can purify and get so you can just have a bottle of hydrogen gas yeah and you you take it out you can uh, you can actually strip the electrons off it pretty easily in an electromagnetic field and then you just have protons wow. and now you can use electro elect the electromagnetic fields to actually begin accelerating them and you then have magnets which focus these accelerated protons into a bunch into a beam that's uh, and you keep on accelerating them okay. and uh and so that's how you actually make a beam of protons it's, so you it's don't pretty actually straightforward yeah so you don't actually just do one proton you do like a whole bunch into a stream exactly and okay, and, yeah. the, and the number of protons we put into a bunch of around, like around 10 to the 11 right so about a hundred billion protons yeah are wow. in a single bunch yeah, and we have about 2,000 bunches uh, in the collider at one time. This collider is about 27 kilometers long. Yeah, the, we um, talked about so, that in, uh, in our physics class. Yeah, yeah so, so these bunches actually pass through each other as they go through around uh, one, one set of bunches going in one direction and the other set of bunches going in the opposite direction in the ring. And uh, when they pass through each other, uh, some number of the protons collide with each other. And, uh, and those collisions are what we're interested in looking at. But, Is it um, a relatively small yeah. amount? Uh, well, let's see, the number of collisions, yeah. uh, they're, hap they're happening at the rate of about a, a billion collisions a second. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, also, sorry, a quick uh, middle question here. Um, so you said that they're pretty much just, they just go in opposite directions, correct? But right. I thought that, um, the, the beam that was shot out of the LHC, like it goes in many, 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 many circles, and then finally then collides with the opposing particles, or is that not correct? Or does it just, well, so what happens is I think you're referring to the acceleration of the particles in the early stage. When the beam is injected into the LHC, yeah. uh, the beam is uh, traveling at about um, uh, around 15% of, of its maximum energy. So the first thing we do is we insert the proton then, and then we accelerate them inside the Large Hadron Collider. It's okay. an accelerator as well as a collider. And we accelerate them to then their maximum energy. And at that point, when they actually have gotten accelerated, we then bring them into collision. The, uh, and then have the collisions taking place right at the center of the detectors that are the, uh, down in the, the, uh, in the LHC itself. The, uh, so once you actually have them uh, stored, as we say, and in collision, then they remain in collision for Oh, typically a border about uh, anywhere from about five to ten hours. Oh, and okay, and then and then we dump the beam, and uh, we actually start again with a new beam, a fresh set of protons. Uh, and the reason we do that is that as we as a as a proton circulate, 
you know, some number of them are actually, every time they turn around in that 27 kilometer, you lose some number of them. Mm -hmm. the, um, and you lose some number because of the collisions themselves that are taking place. The, uh, yeah. so, so there's a kind of a lifetime for the beam, which is of order around 10 to 15 hours. Yeah. And this process of uh, putting the beam colliding, new beam colliding, new beam colliding, it just takes, how long does it approximately take to find, for example, the Higgs boson? Like, did it take you years, months, uh, so it weeks? Took us a, so it took us uh, about um, two and a half years of collecting data. Wow. Wow. Mm. That's okay. Just just repeated protons crashing into each other. Yep. Just, just trying collecting. to find some some other particle. That's right. Much, right. Just okay. collecting, collecting all the data and then sifting through it and looking for, you know, the very specific signatures, the very specific kinds of events that would signal that a Higgs boson was produced and then decayed. Were you uh, seeing a lot of variance in the in the results, or was it relatively the same thing happening over and over again? Well. So this is a bit of a needle in the haystack problem because I, you know, I talked about the fact that there are about a billion collisions a second taking place. Well, a Higgs boson is produced maybe once every, oh, half an hour. Oh, okay. So, okay. so if you were to think about that, well, you know, half an hour is, you know, it's the uh, uh, order of around 10 to the, 10 to the four seconds. And if you're producing a billion collisions, 10 to the uh, 10 to the nine, that means that you actually, for every Higgs boson, you also have about another 10 to the 13 collisions. Oh, oh wow. wow. Okay. 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 So that's a needle in the haystack problem. We have to yeah. pull out the Higgs boson from about one in 10 to the 12, 10 to the 13 collisions. Wow, that and sounds incredible. like very hard work. So that's a, that's a challenge, and mm, yeah. and that's what made it. Uh, that's what took so long because it's they're rare to begin with, and then we have to convince ourselves that when we're doing this, we've never done it before, right? No one is telling us how we're mm. supposed to do it. We have to sort of <laughs> yeah. find our own way, and we have to convince ourselves and others that. You know, the, we finally come to a class of events, a small number of events out of this huge number that we think are Higgs boson. Uh, we have to convince people that we know how many of those candidate events are fake and therefore how many are real. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, that, that is where most of the work goes into in the data analysis. It's uh, convincing yourself. And, and this is where the math comes in, right? You're doing yeah. heavy statistics on these events and, and you're uh, trying to actually measure something you've never measured before. The, uh, so uh, right. the, uh, you know, the, 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 the way that we're able to sort of convince ourselves that we haven't screwed up in some way is that there's another, there was another collaboration doing exactly the same thing uh, that was doing it. And we had kind of firewalls between ourselves that we did not know what was going on on the other side of the ring. And they didn't know what was going on in our experiment. The, uh, yeah. And the, uh, so that when we found it, when my collaboration decided that we had really discovered it, um, 
uh, it was at that point the lab director said, okay, so what's the other collaboration doing? And they had already come to the same decision. The, um, so when we actually presented the results back on uh, July 4th, 2012, uh, in fact, both collaborations presented their results one after the other. And they were exactly oh. consistent. They're, you know, statistically speaking, the results were very compatible. Um, oh, that's amazing. And, and people, you know, there's a, there's a whole movie about this called Particle Fever. That, uh, oh, there's a movie on this. Yeah. And that's worth actually watching. Okay, okay. And it's called Particle Fever? That's right. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Okay, so it's already 32 minutes, but I really do want to answer the. Uh, I I want you to answer this final question, and because you uh, you were my professor in this course, I think it's suitable that you answer the question to what do you think about like dark matter? I'm I, I, okay. I'm I'm not gonna lie. Originally, I was gonna ask about dark energy, but now I think because you're mainly focusing on particle physics. Uh, I think dark matter would be the more appropriate question. So what are your views on dark matter? I think dark matter exists. It's really mm. hard to understand what we observe without having something that we nowadays talk about as dark matter. Uh, it's I think it's most likely a particle, but it could okay. be something else. Uh, you know, that mm. that's more of a hunch. Then if it's on, not a particle, what else would it be? Would it be like some sort of energy or would it, but then that would be dark energy. No, yeah. it, it wouldn't be energy. Sorry. So just no. a question. If, <laughs> if it's not a particle, what else would it be? Well, you know, you and I talked about this a lot in this uh, seminar class, you know, what are the possible yeah. models for dark matter? Mm -hmm. And, and there are models, which uh, you remember, we uh, talked about the possibility that, well, you know, what we're really observing is actually gravity changing in a way that we don't really understand. And, mm. you know, you could say, well, is that really dark matter or not? Well, it's not clear. The, um, it's, it's also possible that dark matter is not a particle, but it's a field. The, um, you know, particles mm -hmm. and fields are, or there are waves, uh, are in some, in many cases, you can't separate them. The, uh, there, there's duality, the uh, mm -hmm. wave particle duality, we call it in quantum mechanics. So maybe it's more properly seen as a field, but uh, I think that it's actually a particle. It just makes more sense. Uh, all the data we have, in, you have to, you know, just points in that direction. Um, but the fact that you have all these fingers pointing in the same direction does not make it so until you really have observed right. it. That's true. Are there, are there true. any definitive properties that we know about dark matter today? Uh, probably the most definitive is that it causes gravitational interactions. It actually attracts things that are massive. The, uh, and that's really what makes the evidence for dark matter so strong. Uh, galaxies rotate faster than they're supposed to. The, uh, you look at the, uh, the uh, uh, there's an effect that uh, where light is bent by gravity. Um, and so you actually gravitational lensing exactly, and so gravitational lensing yeah. can, the uh, the amount we observe is way too much 
for to be explained by the ordinary matter in our universe. Oh. And finally, the one that probably the strongest piece of evidence is that if you look at the nature of the early universe, uh, studying the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, the, the patterns, the, uh, the fluctuations in from one point to another of that radiation uh, is best explained by a theory that incorporates a particle form of dark matter. The, uh, so all those sorts of things hang together very well. Uh, the, the fly in the ointment is that we haven't actually observed any particle that could be a dark matter candidate. Long time. <laughs> yeah. We Hopefully just... <laughs> we will find it soon. Hopefully we'll find it soon. You know, but this is actually the, the nature of doing science, right? You're, we're actually trying to discover things. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So uh, we're 36 minutes in. I think, um, I think you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. You're today. welcome. Super interesting. My pleasure. Yeah. It was awesome talking to you. Um, I guess, yeah, we've gone through all of our questions, I think. Yeah, pretty much. And w once again, we'd just like to thank you, Dr. Sinervo, for uh, joining us today on this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. And now I think uh, we'll be signing off. Okay. I'm Ray. Okay. And I'm Parker. And we will see you soon. All right. <laughs>